as illustrated in the life of George Mueller. I asked if you had read a biography at all uh, on him. I would encourage you to. I hope if you have never been familiar with him, this will be a lamp under your uh, under your hind end to get you moving to get to know George a little bit better. Two that I have particularly been helped by, um, before I get to those, I first read William Harding's biography of uh, Mueller. I was at my sister's house on vacation, and she had it on her shelf, and I just picked it up randomly, started reading a few pages, and I couldn't put it down. I just finished most of it before we left um, and was so encouraged. My life has never been the same since having read that biography, and I'll explain that as we move through. Then when I got back, I started digging in some more. We I did a small group here at Newton Bible a couple years ago in which we walked through ordinary lives of church history and how God used them in mighty ways. And I spent one of those times talking about Mueller, who is very ordinary and yet had extraordinary faith. Um, and for that, I worked through Roger Steer's Mueller biography, Delighted in God. Uh, very readable, very current, um, very helpful, very directive to your spiritual life. So that is worth reading. If you're part of our church family, you can always borrow that from me. Uh, and then John Piper's got a tome called 21 Servants of Sovereign Joy. This is a, actually a compilation of several of his books that he's put out. This is worth picking up and reading, or you can borrow mine. One of the chapters in here is on Mueller. Um, if you don't want to read it and you want to listen to something, he actually has all these in biographical sermons on DesiringGod.org. So you can go to Desiring God, and you can uh, work through those biographical sermons um, on that website. So just search biographical sermons on Desiring God, and he's got every one of those is worth listening to. Um, but George Mueller's is obviously the most impactful for me. Uh, that is the fruit of uh, an angst in my soul that I felt a few years ago. I was feeling dry spiritually. Um, I was feeling pressed upon by the ministry, uh, which is always true, but it was having unique effect on me at that point. Um, and I was, I was feeling somewhat hopeless in ministry. just had reached a low point, and I, I just didn't know what was going on. What was, what was wrong with me? And in God's providence, I just picked up a few biographies and started reading them and just flew through them because they were so helpful to me. They were a stream in the desert for me, um, just a, a constant flowing well. And what they were was the illustration of this faith once for all delivered to the saints. They, they showed me things that I've known my whole life in living color. Uh, and they showed me them in the context of, of the struggles of life. And those are easier to digest in a biography sometimes than they are just talking to one another because we don't always know how even to talk about it. Um, and it's just really easy to pick that up in a biography because you know, we know the end of the story, <laughs> and it turned out okay. Uh, and they trusted God, and he proved himself faithful. So th that was just a huge blessing to me. And one of those that I read was Mueller's, and as I said already, I have never been the same since. You need to know as we jump in that Mueller's life of prayer was not unique in the scope of church history. In fact, he uh, is one of many who could be an example to us of, of how to uh, persist in and be committed to prayer. Uh, men like E.M. Bounds and, and all the others that were quoted in our first session who could teach us about how to pray. But what was unique about Mueller was that he set out to be a living parable of the reality and the constant kindness of God. He set out to make his life a living statement that God exists and God loves those who are his and cares for them with his unique power. By believing prayer, I'm going to use that phrase a lot, I mean to speak of prayer that's full of robust faith in the God who is being prayed to. 
And I say that intentionally, believing prayer, because it's easy to pray without believing. It's easy to fail to remember who we're talking about. It's easy to fail to remember what we should be asking about. It's easy to fail to remember that the God we're praying to actually can do something about the thing we're asking Him. It's easy to fall into the rut of, I know I'm supposed to do this, but I'm not so sure it actually works. I'm not so sure He actually hears, and I'm not so sure He actually cares. So what I want to do is encourage you from Mueller's life with five lessons of believing prayer. And I think his life uniquely illustrates it. In fact, in, in all of church history, I don't know of another saint whose life is such a living parable of believing prayer. And I want to make that point for you today. Before we get there, let me just kind of give you the context. I think the lessons themselves have more power if you understand who Mueller was. And if you understand the context of his life and what he was doing and what was going on. So I'm going I'm to run through that for you and give you that overview. Before we do that, can we, can we do the very thing we're talking about? Can we pray? Ask God for help. Let's pray. Lord, we do believe that you exist and rejoice that you have made yourself known to us through your Son. We believe that you desire for us to grow in our faith and that you have given us saints of old who line the way and encourage us to walk in faithful trust. So would you help us in the minutes ahead to receive this truth and and to learn from our dear brother, George Mueller, and to grow in our faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. I don't know how much you know about Mueller's life, but he had a life that spanned almost the entire 19th century. He was born in 1805, died in 1898 at the age of 93. He outlived all of his immediate family members. This is really important to understand him. He outlived all of his immediate family members. He buried his first wife, by which he had four children. Three of those four children died in infancy, uh, one at over a year old. Um, so not just at birth, but later uh, due to illness. And then only one daughter um, who lived to the age of 57, and he performed her funeral in 1890 three years before he passed into heaven himself. Lydia, his daughter, was married to James Wright, who succeeded George in overseeing the uh, orphanages in England. The majority of his life was spent in Bristol, England. He was, however, originally from Prussia, or modern-day Germany, and he came to England as a missionary, and he, he never moved anywhere else. He stayed there. He was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon. He preached in Spurgeon's Metropolitan Tabernacle, Spurgeon actually was born in the year that Mueller founded the Scripture Knowledge Institution for Home and Abroad. Uh, Mueller founded that when he was 28, so Spurgeon was born when Mueller was 28, and uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and Mueller lived uh, all of Spurgeon's life um, until the 1890s. Hudson Taylor was largely impacted by Mueller, largely adopted his faith-based uh, mission mindset that all of the funds for missions work would come through the believing prayers of God's people. To broaden our, our perspective, think about the 19th century for Great Britain as an empire. Um, coming out of the 17th century, which was not, or excuse me, the 18th century, which was not so great, um, in the 1700s, late 1700s, losing the war in America, they were licking their wounds coming into the 1800s and retooling uh, who they were as an empire, and they were flexing their muscles far and wide, and they were becoming... Uh, a dominant empire. Uh, They had established a a great peace in their empire known uh, by historians as the Victorian Age. It was a period of of vast modernization. Um, People like Alexander Graham Bell and Thomas Edison, Samuel Morse were bringing in inventions that were changing the world almost overnight. 
Um, so the, the telegraph, the telephone, the radio, the electric lights, all these things were amazing tools that were brought about during Mueller's lifetime. On the church scene, they were still uh, basking in the glow of the Second and Great Awakenings of the 1700s. And so the churches were still, in many ways, uh, living off of the power of the previous century. And yet they were, were kind of dying as well. So they, they had great attendance and, and churches were swelling. But there was a lack of, of true faith. And we'll talk a lot about that as Mueller understood it. And he was used to, um, to counter that in the church. It was also the time of, of great uh, man-centered humanistic thought, right? So Charles Darwin lived in the 1800s and wrote his tome um, in 1859. So there's plenty of opposition in Mueller's own country to the truths of the word of God. But there was a major black eye on Great Britain, and that was the plight of their orphans. Uh, that was made known through Charles Dickens uh, in a popular level way through his novel Oliver Twist. Um, but it was just a huge problem. There, there were many pandemics that hit the, the British Empire in the 1800s, and many parents died, and often both parents died due to these pandemics. And so children were left without anyone who was able and or willing to care for them. And so they were left to the streets to fend for themselves. Mueller writes of a, a report he read when he first started the Scripture Knowledge Institute um, he read a report that there were 5,000 orphans imprisoned in uh, the nation of England because they had committed some crime to feed themselves and were thrown into jail, which was not a party either, as you can imagine. And so Mueller determined to be one of the answers to that problem as an evidence of God's ability and power. Um, to set all of this in context, let's talk a little bit about his spiritual development. He grew up in a quasi-Christian home uh, who he heard the things of the faith but was not a believer. And it was obvious as he got into his teenage years how much of an unbeliever he was. He was a black eye in the family. He lived in complete debauchery. At the age of 16, he was thrown into jail because he had left the home and was living in a hotel to carry out his wiles of sinfulness. And he didn't pay his bill. And so he was thrown into, into jail. His father had to come and bail him out and try to set him straight. He checked into the University of Howe uh, in Prussia and started to learn, and it was just a disaster again. At the age of 20, one of his friends invited him to a Bible study, and he said, well, what happens at this Bible study? Oh, well, we, we sing and we pray and we read a sermon, and then we talk about the sermon together. And it was this that God used to bring George to an awareness of his sin and to an awareness of Christ as Savior. He was gloriously converted, and he was immediately constrained by the love of a Savior like Jesus. He was committed at that point to give his life for Christ, whatever that would look like. As that developed, he gave his life to be a missionary. He soon left for uh, England to train to be a missionary. Um, I don't have time for this story, but I'll tell it anyways. He was in Prussia, and before he could leave, he had to, had to fulfill military service. Uh, it was mandatory military service, and um, that would delay everything, and he, just, he didn't want to do it. Well, Providentially, he got deathly sick, and, and so sick that, that the military official said, you're too sickly ever to do this, and so they absolved him of his requirement to do it, and as soon as he was absolved, he started to get better. As soon as he moved to England, he got entirely better. He never had that illness again. God used that to get him out and get him in to London. Well, as he was in London, he started uh, training for ministry. He started becoming familiar with the mission agencies in London, which is a huge part of the story later. Um, and then he got sick again in London, and most of it was because of the bad air and the bad environment in London. 
much like what Charles Spurgeon dealt with as well. And the doctor did what they did with, with Spurgeon, said you need to leave, go to the shore, go somewhere and get some fresh air. And so they said that to him as well. He left and he went to a town of Tainmouth under the providential direction of God. He met up with a man named Henry Craig. Henry Craig became his, his spiritual mentor for life, uh, a co-pastor, a co-laborer for life. In 1832, he and Craig then moved their families to Bristol. And they did that because a church down there wanted them to come pastor. They ended up pastoring two churches in Bristol, and they were co-pastors of them both. Eventually that focused in on one church called Bethesda Chapel, uh, and they pastored there, and um, Mueller pastored there for 66 years until the day of his death, faithfully serving the Lord. He, he spoke, by the way, in his early 90s of having complete and absolute use of his mental faculties, and, and by his sermons at that age, I think it was true. God blessed this man with vibrancy until the day of his death. He was an interesting fella. He, he marched to the beat of his own drum in many ways. Uh, even his church was, was a little bit odd. It had associations, but was not constrained to any of them. Piper describes him as an independent, premillennial, Calvinistic, Baptist pastor who led his church to observe the Lord's table every week and admit non-immersed people into membership. That's, a, that's an interesting combination. All of those things together is a unique combination. That is the encapsulated form of George Mueller. He's just a unique, interesting maverick of a person. In 1834, he started his own ministry called the, uh, excuse me, the Scripture Knowledge Institution for Home and Abroad. It's a really long name. I can't ever remember it all. But anyways, and he did that because he was so tired of what he saw in the mission agencies of, of England. And what he saw, namely, was post-millennialism, theological liberalism, and worldly strategies. And the one that he saw that most concerned him was going into debt to pay for Christ's work. He was convinced that if God wanted something to happen, God was going to provide for that something to happen. And he saw these mission agencies going into debt to make these things happen, and he said, this is worldly, this is not a faith. And so he started his own. It was a five-fold focus. They established schools for children and adults to teach Bible knowledge. They distributed Bibles. They distributed books and tracts. They supported missionaries. In fact, Hudson Taylor got most of his support through George Mueller's ministry. And the last one, which you know most, is that they set out to board, clothe, and scripturally educate destitute children who have lost both parents by death. What he means is they have no one in their immediate family to care for them, and they're destitute, meaning they don't have any inheritance. They have no money to pay for their own way. That's a, a pretty narrow focus. And yet, throughout his ministry, he... Uh, by God's kindness, established five orphanage, orphanage houses on a piece of land called Ashley Down outside of Bristol. And he cared for, in his lifetime, over 10,000 orphans, 10,024 to be exact. And he did it all without ever borrowing one penny from anyone. And without ever asking or letting any of his associates in his ministry ask anyone directly for a gift to support the ministry. He did it all by believing in God, praying for God to bring it in. His reliance upon the Lord moved God's people to send support for Mueller's work. Now, to be fair, he also sent out an annual report every year telling about what God had done the year before. And so through that report, everyone knew what was going on, and that was, in essence, a way to ask without asking, and that was not how he intended it. He wanted people to know what God had done. It was not his way to say, keep giving. But that is what happened in part. 
I don't mean to minimize God's work at all by saying that. I'm just saying to be fair. Over his lifetime, he received 1.5 million pounds in gifts and goods. That would be equivalent to 100 million pounds in today's currency, which means nothing to me because I'm in America. <laughs> so at the currency exchange rate, that would be $136 million in today's money that he brought in through believing prayer. This life of prayerful dependence was rooted in conviction of faith. And it was rooted in holiness of life. It was driven by his desire for the Lord to, to make known to the world that there is really God and he is really for his people. On one occasion he visited a man who is a member of, of one of his churches and this man had a habit of working 16 hours a day at his craft to make ends meet. Obviously his health was suffering, his, his commitment, Christian commitment to the church and to his faith meant little to him. As Mueller talked to him, he said to him, you know, if you worked less, your health would improve and you would have more time to read your Bible and pray. You would know more joy spiritually. The man, as you can imagine, the conversation going, says, but if I work less, I don't earn enough money to support my family. Even now, while I work such long hours, I scarcely have enough. The wages are so low that I have to work hard to obtain what we need. At that point, before I tell you what he said, what do you think there? What would you say in response to that man? You don't have to say it out loud, but just think. Now, in our, in our natural mindset, we're thinking, I get it. I mean, you got to do it. You got to do what you got to do to provide for your family, right? In our humanistic, man-dependent ways, we're like, well, I guess that is what it is. You got to work what you got to work. In Mueller's heart, he thought this. This is not trust in God. This is not belief in the words of Christ. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. And so he said, my dear brother, it is not your work which supports your family, but the Lord. And he who has fed you and your family when you couldn't work at all on account of illness would surely provide for you and yours if for the sake of obtaining food for your inner man, you were to work only for so many hours a day as would allow you proper time for this. You can imagine the man then in response says, well, how would I get on if I actually did that? If I actually took your advice, how is it actually going to work? I mean, that's, that's nice, George. Thanks for your counsel. But how is that actually going to work? Right? It was there that Mueller said, I wish I had a living illustration of the dependability of God. I wish I could have said to that man in that moment, well, look at so-and-so and how they trusted God and God met their needs. He walked away from that conversation saying, God, if you want me to be that person, make me that person. It was that and many other conversations that led him then to this thought. I judged myself bound to be the servant of the church of Christ in the particular point on which I had obtained mercy, namely in being able to take God at his word and to rely upon it. That led him then to the establishment of the first orphan house, which would turn into five over time as a visible, tangible expression of God's power. He said, I, I want to care for orphans. I want to educate orphans. I want to bless orphans. But he said, ultimately, I want to be used of God to be an example that he is worthy of trust, that he is real, and that he can be believed. So in light of that amazing life of prayerful dependence, and I'll give you more illustrations as we move through, but I want to get into these five lessons. What, what are these lessons of believing prayer that we ourselves can can seek to grow in and have. The first is that believing prayer is convinced of the sovereign grace of God. 
Believing prayer is convinced of the sovereign grace of God. Think of Ephesians 1. We won't work through it because I only have 50 minutes, but think of, of that text. How does it start? It starts with extolling God and His amazing, kind grace to save a soul. And how does it end? How does Ephesians 1 end? It ends in prayer. Compelled by the, the kindness of God to save us, to choose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. It ends in pleading with God to display His power through His people. Now I start here because this is where Mueller's, excuse me, Mueller's explosion of trust began. This fuse of the conviction of faith was, was lit early in his ministry development when he came to grasp the power of God to save a sinful soul and the purposes of God to intend to make that happen through the extension of his grace. It was actually Henry Craig who was the most influential of him in this way and his understanding of the doctrines of grace. He said this, Mueller Mueller said, I keep saying Mueller, I don't know why, I'm sorry. Mueller said this, Before this period, I had been much opposed to the doctrines of election, particular redemption, final, persevering grace. So much so, that a few days after my arrival at Tainmouth, I called election a devilish doctrine. Not the first Christian to say that, is he? I knew nothing about the choice of God's people and did not believe that the child of God, when once made so, was safe forever. But now I was brought to examine these precious truths by the word of God. He goes on to say, being made willing to have no glory of my own in the conversion of sinners, but to consider myself merely as an instrument. And being made willing to receive what the scripture said, I went to the word, reading the New Testament from the beginning. By the way, when he had a doctrinal uh, perplexity that he didn't know how to answer, this is what he did. He started in Matthew and he read through Revelation with a particular view to what does the Bible say about this. He was said to have read the scriptures through over 200 times in his lifetime, the New Testament many more. Because he would commit himself to knowing what does God say. If you're going to live a life of believing prayer, you have to know what God has said in his word. It's rooted and grounded there. With particular reference to these truths, he read the New Testament. He says, To my great astonishment, I found that the passages which speak decidedly for election and persevering grace were about four times as many as those which speak apparently against these truths. And even those few, shortly after, when I had examined and understood them, served to confirm me in the above doctrines. And so to the effect which my belief in these doctrines had on me, I am constrained to state, for God's glory, that though I am still exceedingly weak, and by no means so dead to the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, as I might and as I ought to be, yet by the grace of God I have walked more closely with Him since that period." My life has not been so variable, and I may say that I have lived much more for God than before. You cannot understand George Mueller unless you understand the fuse of love and adoration for his God lit by his understanding from the word of God's sovereign grace. Piper describes that by saying, Mueller was led to embrace the doctrines of grace, the robust, mission-minded, soul-winning, orphan-loving Calvinism that marked William Carey who died in 1834 and that would mark Charles Spurgeon who was born in 1834. He simply can't understand the sacrifice of Mueller and the commitment of Mueller if you don't understand how deeply he was convinced of the sovereign grace of God. Having been bought at such a high price by the intentional effort of God to rescue him from his sin, he was committed to live his life as a constant sacrifice for God. He could say like Paul, I'll gladly spend and be spent for your souls. 
because he was rooted in the grace of God given for him. He considered himself dispensable for the glory of God because he was convinced of the grace of God. Therefore, he could give his life fully to the ministry of the orphanage and to the care of these orphans. And so he prayed prayers shaped by this. He prayed for God's glory to be seen and his grace to be extended. He prayed for stuff that would line up with God's sovereign grace, that could be carried out by God's sovereign grace, and that could extol the God of such grace. Believing prayer then also is convinced of sure gladness in God. It's convinced of sure gladness in God. Psalm 4 verse 6 says, There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. The great lie of your own flesh, the great lie of the devil, is that there's gladness to be found in the stuff of life or in the experiences of life that will last for all of life. The psalmist says, everybody asks, who will show us something good? And they cry to the Lord, show us something good. And then he says, we are more glad in God than anyone who has any experience in this life. Mueller had learned this. He had learned, like Paul, to be content in all things. Whether he had much or little, Christ was his all in all. He had learned the secret of that contentment to be delighted in God through Christ. He had never once found God to disappoint him and make him glad. Piper says it this way, For him, the sovereign goodness of God served, first and foremost, the satisfaction of the soul. And then the satisfied soul was free to sacrifice and live a life of simplicity and risk and self-denial and love. But everything flowed from the soul that was first satisfied in the gracious, sovereign God. In other words, loving God who gives gifts rather than the gifts of the God who gives good gifts. Being completely content in God as God, not in what I think I deserve as a child of God. Mueller says this, according to my judgment, the most important point to be attended to is this. Your ears should pick up, right? Like Mueller, one of the greatest saints to to walk the planet, one of the the most faith-filled servants of Christ. He says, here's the most important point. Above all things, see to it that your souls are happy in the Lord. Other things may press upon you. The Lord's work may even have urgent claims upon your attention. But I deliberately repeat, it is of supreme and paramount importance that you should seek above all things to have your souls truly happy in God himself. Day by day, seek to make this the most important business of your life. The secret of all true effectual service is joy in God. Having experimental acquaintance and fellowship with God himself. This is the glad dependence upon God that led to glad self-denial. You, you can't have the dependence of Mueller without the denial of Mueller. They go hand in hand. He was so convinced of the goodness of God and he was so glad in God that he could depend on God and he could serve God in any and every way. He was content in Christ and in the sufficiency of Christ. Therefore, he could give his all for Christ. Well, isn't self-denial impossible for us in in all of its hard requirements. Well, Mueller said it this way. Self-denial is not so much an impoverishment as a postponement. Self-denial is not as much an impoverishment as a postponement. He went on to say, we make a sacrifice of a present good for the sake of a future and a greater good. 
This is also what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4 when he spoke of the ministry of self-denial. And he said these, these light momentary afflictions, things he could have gotten out of if he went after the world's offerings and left aside Christ's command, right? Paul could have gotten out of those light momentary afflictions. But he, he postponed those. He wasn't impoverished by good things. He postponed it for a greater weight of glory yet to come of which these light afflictions were preparing him. Someone once asked Mueller, what is your secret of service for God? He said, there was a day when I died, utterly died, he said. As he spoke, he went lower and lower to the floor, as though to visibly illustrate his point. He said, I died to George Mueller, his opinions, his preferences, his tastes and his will. I died to the world, its approval or censure. I died to the approval or blame of even my brethren and friends. And since then, I have studied to show myself approved only unto God. It sounds like the Apostle Paul, right? I die daily. I am crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This life I now live, I no longer live in the flesh, but I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's Mueller's testimony as well. This gladness of God is illustrated in his life as he faced affliction over which he prayed. So his wife Susanna was, was deathly ill with a blood hemorrhage. In fact, it was so bad that as the doctor attended to her, he said, she's not going to make it. I, I've never seen a patient bleed so much and still live. In that moment, Mueller had to respond, and he wrote this in his diary. For the t- third time now, my inmost soul sought to be satisfied with God, to delight myself in God, to kiss the hand which smote me. And by his grace, I did so. I know what a lovely, gracious being God is from the revelation which he has been pleased to make of himself in his holy word. I believe this revelation. I also know from my own experience the truth of it, and therefore I was satisfied with God. I delighted myself in God. And so it came that he gave me the desire of my heart, even the restoration of my dear wife. You notice that he's not satisfied in God because of the restoration of his wife. It is in the illness of his wife, of which she very likely will die, that he has to wrestle with, what is my soul most contented in here? What makes me most happy, most glad here? And he wrestled for that to be God. But you must know that doesn't always mean you get what you want. As though you might think that's the the key to the door that opens all answered prayer. Mueller himself, with his first wife now, when she was deathly ill with rheumatic fever, which would be the disease that would kill her in a matter of a, day, of a few days. Mueller said, even in that moment, as he expected the worst, though my heart was nigh to be broken on account of the depth of my affection, which, by the way, he said later, he never saw his wife on accident, just in the course of life, in the orphanage or at home or in, in town, where he ran into her, where he wasn't glad to see her. Mm-hmm. So you who are married, take note. He was glad to see his wife wherever he saw her. He was happy to make her acquaintance, is how he said it. (laughs) He goes on, I said to myself, with that heaviness of affection for his wife, I said to myself, the Lord is good and does good. All will be according to his own blessed character. Nothing but that which is good, like himself, can proceed from him. If he pleases to take my wife, it will be good like himself. What I have to do as his child is to be satisfied with what my father does, that I may glorify him. Beloved, do you notice what he had to do for his own heart? 
he had to preach to himself. This is, this is late in his life. He's in his, I believe he's in his 60s at this point. He has served his Lord well at this point. You would think maybe somewhere along the way that just kind of becomes your knee-jerk spiritual reaction, right? Mm-hmm. This is just the rut of, of faith now. The darkest hour comes, and oh man, I'm just glad in God. No, he had to preach to himself. He had to fight for this joy. He had to turn the course of his ship back to focus on God and to be glad in God, to determine to take God at his word in his darkest hour. Why? Because it didn't feel like it, did it? It didn't feel in that moment like God is good and everything he does is good. It doesn't feel like it sometimes. If it did, you wouldn't need faith. This is Mueller walking in faith and gladness of God, compelled by his sovereign goodness to extraordinary faith. Believing prayer also is convinced of the fatherly kindness of God. Mueller was completely convinced that God, as his loving heavenly father, would always give him what is right and good. And that does not mean right and good as determined by George Mueller. But right and good as determined by his all-wise, eternally sufficient father. And that shaped his praying. It compelled his praying. It did both. It made him pray, and it shaped how he prayed. And it kept him persistent in prayer. So if God is a good and loving Father who is infinite in wisdom and infinite in power, then Mueller's thought was, why do I neglect to go to him? Why not go to him? Why not ask him? Knowing that he will give me all that I need, and that believing prayer is an avenue of which I obtain all that I need, as he has so ordained. Believing prayer is convinced of that and is compelled by that. As he reflected on his first wife's death, Mary, he said this, the last portion of scripture I read to my precious wife, and this is Psalm 84.11, the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Now if we have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, he goes on to say, have received grace, we are partakers of grace, and to all such he will give glory also. I said to myself, again, notice the inner wrestlings. I said to myself, with regard to the latter part, no good thing will be withheld from them who walk uprightly. I am in myself a poor, worthless sinner, but I have been saved by the blood of Christ, and I do not live in sin. I walk uprightly before God. Therefore, if it is really good for me, my darling wife will be raised up again, sick as she is. God will restore her again. But if she is not restored again, then it would not be a good thing for me. And so my heart was at rest. I was satisfied with God. And all this springs, as I I have often said before, from taking God at his word, believing what he says, end quote. He trusted the sovereign, fatherly kindness of God. You will not pray in believing prayer if you do not believe this is true. If this is not settled in your heart, that God is a good heavenly father of which you are his spiritual child, and that he delights to give good gifts to his kids, you will not pray as you should. Or you may start out praying, but you will not persevere. Because you'll get into praying, and God will not give you the thing that you thought was best and right and good. And if you're not convinced that God is a wise father who gives good gifts when 
how and to what extent He determines as to be for our good, then you'll quit praying. But if you're convinced, you'll persevere all the more. Fourth lesson on believing prayer is that it is convinced of the sovereign ability of God. The sovereign ability of God. This is Psalm 23.1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Mueller took that promise to the bank of faith and he pulled out more checks on that promise than anyone else in history. Believing prayer is convinced that God can do whatever he so determines to do. If God wants something to happen, Mueller was convinced that God will make it happen. He'll provide for it to happen. So two years before coming to Bristol, he was working in a church and as their pastor, as was normal, they funded the pastor's salary by having people pay for their seats in the pews. And the closer you were to the front, the higher the the rent of your pew was. And he, through reading the scripture, became convinced from James 2 that that was the sin of partiality. And the church in its structure was offending a holy and righteous God. And so he shucked the system, put a box in the back, and he said, listen, if you guys want to give to support me and my dear wife Mary, there's a box back there, give as you see fit. And then he went and talked to the deacons, and he said, listen, I'm never touching that box. That is your responsibility. If God's going to provide for me, it's going to be through you checking that box and giving it to us. Those were hard days. (laughs) That system took a while to, to get going And he often found himself pleading with the Lord to provide for their needs. In fact, he often prayed, Lord, help the deacons to go check the box. Because they often forgot. Because they had plenty of money. Why wouldn't he? He tells a story of of several Sunday afternoons crying out to the Lord, knowing they did not have bread for the next week. Asking God to remind his men to go check the box after the service. Because he knew he needed that provision. He could have gone and grabbed the box. Right? He could have gone and opened the box himself. But he was convinced if God was intending to provide for me, God is able to move, not just in providing the funds, but in moving God's people to provide the funds. When and how he so chooses. He was convinced also from Romans 13, 18 that he should owe no man anything. He took that personally. He also took it to the extent of his ministry. He would often say when a crisis would come and they didn't know how provision was going to happen when faced with that crisis he would say how the means are to come I know not but I know that God is almighty that the hearts of all are in his hands and that if he pleaseth to influence persons they will send help that is completely counterintuitive to how we think in the American church our model seems to be ask the people of God first if that doesn't work Ask the God of the people. Mueller's model was entirely the opposite without the last part. It's just ask the God of the people. Plead with him to provide for my need and let him do it as he sees fit. So very often within the context of the church, we give lip service to faith while depending upon the instrumentality of human means. We have initiatives and missions or initiatives in building or initiatives in ministry that we need funded. And we're little in prayer and great in invitation. Asking people to give, praying little that God's people would give. Does that not smack of a lack of faith? Does that not show that our faith is actually in the people giving the money? Not in the God who would move the people to give the money? Mueller was convinced 
that he must trust God alone. It led him, by the way, you'll be pleased to know, to be a man of no anxieties and no cares. And that's a statement of gold. He said that of himself. He had much to be anxious about. He had hundreds of orphans in his care in five different orphan houses. He had hundreds of staff under his care. He had to provide for them every day. There's a lot to be anxious about. But he said, I truly have faith in God. And so he says, faith in God leads me to, to roll my burdens, all of my burdens upon God. Not only burdens concerning money, but burdens concerning everything. For hundreds are my necessities besides those connected with money. In every way, I find God to be my helper, even as I trust him for everything. I have found invariably during my long life as a believer that if I only believed, I was sure to get in God's time the thing I asked for. I tell you this not for sympathy, but I tell you this as warning, caution to you. As I've worked through this over the last few weeks and as I've entered into this week to prepare and teach you this, God has said, okay, is this real? Or is this true in your own heart? And it's forced upon me one anxiety after another in which I have had to roll that burden to the Lord. And I can, with Mueller, stand here today at the end of this week, which is minuscule in comparison to 66 years of faithful ministry in George Mueller's life, and say to you, he never failed. Never. When, when one anxiety hit after another, when one burden hit after another, I rolled it to the Lord this week. Not perfectly, but persistently. Crying out to Him, saying, Lord, I don't know how this is all going to work. I don't know how these things get fixed. I don't know the answers. I don't know what to say. I don't know when I'm going to sleep. Just being honest. You must help. And He unfailingly proved to be able to bear every burden. This is our God. Believe in prayer that He has sovereign ability, almighty power. He had many critics, as you can imagine. They criticized Him of having a hidden stash of money somewhere. (laughs) He was drawing on, on some treasury somewhere, and he laughed. His answer to them was, as to the secret treasure to which I have access, there is more in this supposition than the objectors are aware of. For surely God's treasury is inexhaustible. And I have indeed drawn out of it, simply by prayer and faith, more than 113,000 pounds since the beginning of the work. This is the sovereign power of God. Last lesson on believing prayer is that it's convinced of the sure answer of God. It's convinced of the sure answer of God. Remember that account in Acts 12 when Peter is imprisoned by Herod. Herod lops off the head of James and sees that the Jews are pleased. And so he, he captures Peter, puts him in prison, and intends to, to kill him after the Passover too because Herod was a man pleaser. In a sermon on that text entitled The Secrets of Prevailing Prayer, Mueller makes the point that the church began well in that situation and they continued well in faith as that crisis hit the church. He talks about how they prayed fervently for the release of Peter. You're going to find that in verses 5 and 12 in Acts 12. Mueller, as he works through that text, he says, I think there's about seven days difference between verse 5 and verse 12. I didn't do the work myself to figure out that's true or not, but that's what he said. So for a week, they're fervently meeting together, praying for the release of their apostle, their leader in the church, Peter. But then what happens when in verse 15, Peter arrives at the door? And poor Rhoda, who's taken much abuse at the hands of many preachers, 
in realization that this is Peter, in her joy, forgets to open the gate and runs to tell everybody. And she runs into the room, and by God's providence, I think that all played out that way so we could see this. Runs into the room and tells them, Peter's at the door. No way. Yes, he's there. What did they say? You're out of your mind, is what they said first. And then they said, he must be his ghost. (laughs) You're out of your mind. Mueller, in that sermon, parks on that phrase. He says it was right here that they failed at believing faith. If they had, had been praying in a believing way, when the answer came, they would have responded with joy, not with disbelieving astonishment. Now, take heart, because God still used their imperfect prayers of imperfect faith to answer it. Praise God. His answer does not depend on the perfection of your prayers. But if they had been praying with believing hearts, they would have rejoiced when God answered their prayer. He goes on to apply this to our own hearts. He says, for instance, suppose any of you have beloved sons or daughters who are unconverted for whom you have been praying long. Uh, Not very uncommon situation in the church, right? At last, they have been brought to the Lord. The test, whether you have been praying in faith or not, is if you say, the Lord be praised for it, and you receive the tidings gladly. Then you have been exercising faith. This is a, a key part of believing prayer. It does not mean you demand does not mean you command God. It means you pray believing He is able. You pray in submission to His will. You beg of Him to do this and then you leave the timetable and the method and means to Him to do as He sees fit. And then when it happens, you say, praise the Lord. He was once asked, how much time do you spend on your knees? A question I think we all would like to ask Him, right? He answered more or less every day. In other words, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> But I live in the spirit of prayer. I pray as I walk about, when I lie down, when I rise up. And the answers are always coming. Thousands and tens of thousands of times have my prayers been answered, he said. When once I am persuaded that a thing is right and for the glory of God, I go on praying for it until the answer comes. George Mueller never gives up. Beloved, if you're believing in prayer, you will never give up. If you're convinced it's right before the Lord and for the glory of God, you will persist in believing prayer. So obviously from Mueller's life, you must take the big lesson to take God at his word and let that shape your praying. To believe him, his every promise and his every plan that has been revealed to us. Pray in light of those and trust him to work all things out for his glory and our good. If you and I were able to talk to George Mueller, I think we might ask him, how did you have such extraordinary faith? And he would say to you, I did not have extraordinary faith. I have ordinary faith that every normal Christian should have. And then you would say, well, how do I get your faith? Right? Just if you could imagine the conversation. Or how can I be strengthened in your faith? That question was asked of him often. He would give a fourfold answer. He would say, first, read the Bible carefully and thoughtfully. Then you will learn more and more about God's character, how kind loving, merciful, wise, and faithful he is. Then when difficulties come, you will be able to rest in God's ability and willingness to help you. That's key. If you know the God of the Bible by being in the Bible, you will be more and more convinced of God's ability and his willingness to provide for your every need. Second, try to keep your conscience clear. Don't make a habit of doing things which are displeasing to God. Otherwise, when your faith is tested, you will have no confidence in God because of your guilty conscience. 
Third, don't try to avoid situations where your faith may be tested. That hits home. Don't try to avoid situations where your faith may be tested. Naturally, we don't like trusting in God alone. But it is when we do this that our faith is strengthened. Finally, remember that God won't test you more than you are able to bear. Be patient and He will prove to you how willing He is to help and deliver. This moment, it is good for you, He said. So may God in His kindness help each of us to grow with these lessons in believing prayer. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for the privilege it is to study your word as made clear in the life of George Mueller. Thank you, Father, for this living parable of what it means to trust you and to pray in light of our trust of you. Would you help us each to grow in this way? And Father, as you test our faith in the week to come, most surely you will. Would you find us to be flat on our face before you, crying out to you for help and knowing that we will find you faithful. Lord, thank you for these dear saints. Would you encourage their faith and strengthen them in their love for you? Thank you for the food that we're about to take part in. I pray that you would be honored by our fellowship. I pray that you'd strengthen our, our minds and our bodies to finish the conference well and to be encouraged in our walk with you. Thank you for loving us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys so much.